Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Jennifer Hooper from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we will be discussing Mayo Clinic Laboratories chromosomal microarray for tumor specimens with Dr. Robert Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much for being here today. Before we get into the details of the test, can you provide our listeners with a little about yourself and your background? Hi, I'm Bob Jenkins. I'm a consultant of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic. In June of next year, I will have been at Mayo for 40 years. Over that time, I've been involved in genetic testing and also genetic research. My primary research interest and clinical interest is uh, brain tumors. I've been funded by the NIH continuously since 1990, evaluating the genetics of gliomas. And so my research expertise links very closely to my clinical activities where I've been responsible primarily for the chromosome microarray test, CMAPT, but I'm also been involved in much of the development of other genetic tests for gliomas. Um, over the years, you know, I started 40 years ago and I did every genetic test. And now the only genetic tests that I work with are brain tumor tests. We have so much business through the clinic and male laboratory services that it's a full-time job just to stay up with the glioma and other brain tumor testing. And that's actually a positive because uh, we see about 60 new brain tumor genetic tests every week. And we've been doing this now for over five years. So we've seen nearly everything. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's definitely your clinical background, your research background, and your expertise for these really complex brain tumors, as well as the expertise within the Mayo Clinic Laboratories practice with 60 coming in a week, I think really sets you up to be a perfect subject matter expert to get into the details of the chromosomal microarray. So with that said, could you provide an overview of the chromosomal microarray assay? The microarray assay has evolved over the years. The current one that we use is the OncoScan, which is made by a company called Thermo Fisher. And it has several hundred thousand DNA oligonucleotides on two slides. And those oligonucleotides are designed to hybridize to chromosomal polymorphisms. And so we get information on genotype for each position in the genome, but also that information can be used to assess actual copy number. And so we use that chemistry. We use a visualization tool called CHAS, Chromosome Analysis System, which is also produced by Thermal Fisher. And that converts this hundreds of thousands of data points into something we can visualize where we see both copy number, absolute copy number, copy number two being normal, one being loss, zero being homozygous loss, 
three being gain and more than three being amplification. We see that easily. And then we also get an estimate of the uh, heterozygosity across the chromosomes. So we can tell whether there's loss of heterozygosity, which is looking for loss of a chromosomal region and or loss of reduplication of the chromosomal region, which is very important in the diagnosis of several different alterations that we do on a daily basis. I just finished looking at 15 cases for today's run, where I basically went through and looked at them very carefully and generated my preliminary diagnosis. So the workflow is, is that the array gets done, it gets QC'd by the technologists, and then a consultant, usually me, but often one, there are two other consultants that do this, Dr. Chris Ida and Dr. Cynthia Zepeda Mendoza. We look at every array, usually the day after it's been come off the scanner, and we generate our first impression of what we think the alterations are. And that is a pretty long document that gets generated every, basically every other day. And that gets fed back to our technologists and they finish the case and it then comes back through the system for reporting. They use basically the information gleaned from our original look at the array the day after it came off the scanner. But that's kind of a quick overview of the, pilot, of the um, process. It usually takes us between 10 between seven and 14 days to be get a case done, depending upon its level of complexity and whether or not it needs to be repeated. Thank you for that background. I think it's really important to understand, right, the nuances of the entire workflow of the chromosomal microarray because it does incorporate a few different pieces into the brain tumor, into the brain tumor classification, diagnosis, and such. So with that said, could you talk a little bit about why CMAPT or the chromosomal microarray should be used over other available assays such as FISH? Oh, what a great question. As a background, the audience should realize, realize that my lab invented the 1P19Q fish probes. That was part of my NIH-funded research. And so we had a lot invested in using fish to diagnose specifically oligodendroglioma and, and the use of those results to diagnose and to decide how to treat those patients. Um, interestingly enough, when we found those fish probes, this is made to get into the weeds, but I think it's important. We looked at all gliomas and we defined the minimal deletion region to design the fish probes from deletions found in all gliomas. Well, it turns out that oligodendroglioma has what's called a translocation between chromosomes one and 19, another observation my lab discovered, which generates whole arm deletion. So the whole 1P arm and the whole 19Q arm are lost. But lots of other gliomas, glioblastoma, IDH mutant astrocytoma, also can delete portions of 1P or 19Q, which is exactly where the fish probes sit. So there can be a, a large number of false negatives and or false positives if you use the fish probes alone. So the array easily finds whole arm deletion of 1P and 19Q, and that's essential. Now, in the new WHO, 
It's also important to know whether or not CDKN2A is homozygously deleted or not to determine whether it's a higher grade oligo. As also, and also, we also want to know something about the level of chromosomal complexity because there can be oligogenitogliomas that have many more alterations, and those are going to be higher grade tumors. So the audience might think, well, you can use fish to find CDKN2A homozygous deletion, and that's true. But the background noise of loss by fish is very high, and CDKN2A homozygous deletion jumps out at me when we see it in an array. So the array test covers all the possibilities of copy number alterations you can find that's important for oligodendrogliomas. So that's why we do not recommend FISH for 1P19Q. The only time we use it is if it's a small biopsy and there's just not enough material to make enough DNA to do it with. Yeah, I think it's important to show there where having a laboratory partner that has the comprehensive menu of going either direction based on how much specimen we have, I think is a, another important point to point out. Can you talk a little bit about the gain of seven and loss of 10 in the EGFR amplification? I think that's another area too where chromosomal microarray really can provide some good benefits. Again, some of this came from my research lab in a New England Journal of Medicine paper in 2015. We now know that gain of seven, loss of chromosome 10, EGFR amplification, and or TERT promoter mutation is diagnostic of glioblastoma. And that is now part of the WHO 2021 guidelines. So we do a lot of cases now looking for those alterations especially in people who have a low-grade lesion, especially in lesions that might have microglial proliferation or some level of nuclear atypia, glial atypia, and it's not clear whether or not this is even a brain tumor, we can tell pretty easily by array whether there's plus 7 or minus 10 and whether or not there's EGFR amplification. This morning, I diagnosed a case of glioblastoma in an elderly person who had microglial proliferation only in their brain. That particular specimen had gain of seven, loss of 10, and other amplifications. There's no doubt that what lesion this person had in their brain is a glioblastoma. So we do a lot of testing for that. In our, amongst the 60 cases we do a week now, probably quarter are low-grade lesions that it's not clear to pathologists, either here at Mayo or elsewhere, that this is actually a, maybe a glioblastoma. It comes back normal, which is great, and sometimes it comes back abnormal, which is not so great. Um, a, a truly important use of a microarray. Now, the audience might wonder why we wouldn't use a methylation array, which has other advantages. One of the challenges of the methylation array is that it has it is very sensitive to tumor content. So you really need 40 or 50% tumor content before you can accurately assess the methylation pattern or a copy number for that matter. And the methylation array copy number information is frankly poor. We can see down to 10% tumor cells for chromosome, whole chromosome 10 loss and chromosome 7 gain and easily find EG replication. So an array test like CMAP-T is essential in the situation of a unclassifiable lesion, especially in an adult, and your person is concerned about 
uh, glioblastoma or even IDH mutant astrocytoma, which we can also see very easily. Yeah, I think that's important, again, to point out to the audience. Talking a little bit about the benefits of having the chromosomal microarray, what's the value of utilizing that test alongside a neurospecific NGS panel, like our NONCP panel at Mayo Clinic Labs? Well, they're complementary. In the example we just talked about, if we see 10% of the cells having plus 7 and minus 10 all by itself, we will report that makes me and us a little nervous. So when non-CP or the TERT NGS test is ordered and it's TERT positive, that is cements the diagnosis. So we like clients to order non-CP and CMAP-T together in that kind of situation because, you know, having other information like Promoter mutation or P10 mutation is very helpful in the context of gain of seven and loss of 10 and improves the confidence of us and of the client and of the patient that they actually have a glioblastoma. That's a specific example, one that mm-hmm. we do and work through every day. But it's also true that we use the non CP data help us interpret the CMAP-T and vice versa, especially in complicated cases. Not to get too deep into the weeds, but there is, the new WHO has, I forgot, a couple of hundred diagnostic entities. We've seen them all. And sometimes it can be very challenging to distinguish one from another. And it's hard to do that by, non, by the NGS test alone or by the microarray alone. So there's a couple of new diagnostic entities, high-grade glioma, High-grade astrocytoma with pyloid features, or HGAB. There's an entity called a pediatric glioblastoma, H3K27 wild type, IDH wild type. Those two entities are very different, and they have different array patterns, but it can be challenging. So in the context of what we see on the array and what we see in the NGS test, like BRAF mutation or FGFR1 mutation, or NF1 mutation, and then we see CDKN2A homozygous deletion in the array, those, that pattern of alterations is basically pathognomonic of HGAP or high-grade astrocytoma with pyloid features. And that diagnosis is, is, has become quite common. Uh, and I won't go into the weeds about what it used to be. We had lots of other names for it until the new WHO. It's really helpful for everyone concerned in the laboratory, the referring pathologist, and ultimately the patient to have both non-CP and CMAP-T on most cases. Here at Mayo, our neuropathologists, when they see a case from internally from a Mayo Clinic patient, or they get a consult, they will order one or the other, depending upon what their initial impression is. They usually order CMAP-T to start, and if we have a question, then they will go on to order non-CP. When they're really concerned about turnaround time, they'll order both together, or they'll order the TERT test and the standalone IDH test with with the CMAP-T. Usually that's enough, especially in an adult with the common glioblastoma or with an IDH mutant astrocytoma or an IDH mutant oligodendroglioma, which are the three main adult gliomas. 
If it's a pediatric tumor, it depends on what they think. They will order a ray if it's a medulloblastoma or an ependymoma or a pilocytocastrocytoma. If it's a, a low-grade pediatric glioma, they'll get non-CP2. It varies depending upon their impression and the degree of difficulty they sense when they look at the pathology. Yeah. And I think walking through the different patient cases with the adult and pediatric type tumors that you're discussing here, I mean, again, really comes back to the importance of complementary molecular biomarkers to really distinguish the entity we're talking about, especially when we talk about it in the construct of the new 2021 WHO classification. So thank you for walking through that. I think that's important for our audience to listen to. It's also true that we do change the diagnosis occasionally. Okay. Usually the referring pathologist or our consulting pathologists have a pretty good idea of what they think they're seeing. And the molecular tests, both the NGS test and the array test, can really solidify that diagnosis. Besides that, providing prognostic and diagnostic information like 1P19PQ deletion or CDKN delay homozygous deletion, which is a critical component of many of the entities in the new WHO. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask again, how then do these results get really used in patient care? We talked about elevated endoglioma, which is my primary of interest. Nowadays, a patient with elevated endoglioma can expect to live 20 or 30 years, but you want to know what the diagnosis is. And what management of those patients typically involves now watchful waiting. So surgery, if the tumor is easily accessible, even if it's not easily accessible to get diagnostic material. If it's a low-grade tumor and it has none of the four prognostic features one can find by ray or by pathology, that patient will most likely be watched because giving them chemotherapy and radiation therapy at the start could generate a much more aggressive recurrent tumor. So most neuro-oncologists then will follow that patient over time. And if the tumor starts to grow back or get larger, they may do another biopsy. If the grade doesn't change, they may continue to watch it. But if it starts to show different higher grade pathology features or CDKN to a homozygous deletion, that's when they often decide to begin chemo radiation. And then that patient has a, maybe another 10 or 15 years of expected lifespan. We find the adverse prognostic features like, or pathology like mitosis or endothelial proliferation, and we see CDKN to a homozygous deletion. That is going to be a patient with a very poor performing oligodendroglioma, and they will likely get chemo and radiation therapy earlier. Yeah. So as I think you can hear, the pathology and the molecular tests are intimately involved in the management of oligodendroglioma patients. I could tell you the same story for IDH mutant astrocytomas. They're a little more aggressive, but they can have high-grade molecular features, which basically causes or might provoke a clinician to do much more aggressive therapy quicker in such patients. 
Yeah. And I think, again, it's such an important piece to recap in the sense that the molecular biomarkers are a critical component for both the pathologist and the oncologist really distinguishing the care plan for the patient in these really complex brain tumors. I appreciate the insight on that. Is there anything else you feel that's important to highlight on this? We've covered a lot of information, which I think is really important for our listeners. Sure. Just a couple of, maybe to reiterate a couple of points. Every array and every non-CP for that matter is looked at by a very experienced geneticist pathologist. For years, it was me and I'm training my successors to do more or less what I do so that we are trying to decide what this might be given our specialist knowledge about brain tumors. If we see something challenging, and if it's a consult case, we, will, we have a weekly conference and we go over challenging cases every week to help us understand what we're seeing because there are things that even, you know, that I don't understand and are not clear from the new WHO. So we will cover them in, in the conference and then use that to generate a meaningful report. We do that also for non-consult cases, for cases that get sent in directly. In those instances, I will, or the other folks will call the referring pathologist and try to get to tell them what we're seeing and get some more insight. And then, of course, the other piece is the future. As the audience should be aware of, genetic testing is changing all the time. We will be introducing methylation testing. Uh, we do send it out on challenging cases where non-CP and CMAT-T hasn't been helpful. That's not very often, but it still happens. But we know we need that, so we're working on instituting a methylation test. The non-CP is going to be improved and updated with a whole new NGS test in 2023. What's coming faster than any of us probably are aware of is we're going to be doing some kind of whole genome sequencing at some depth as a diagnostic tool. And from that information, we can recover mutations, fusions, and copy numbered information. So that's coming very quickly. And we're working hard on that um, internally, not just for brain tumors, but for other cancers. But we will be, I don't know when that will become live because the computational challenge of visualizing and doing the copy number piece is a bit challenging. But that's coming. And the, the audience should be aware that we're not just sitting back and just using the same tests we've always used. We are, we are constantly trying to improve what we do to improve diagnostic procedures and prognostic methods that we can use for patients. Because science doesn't sit still. Pathology doesn't sit still. It's always moving forward. Yeah. It's always evolving. And as you said it very eloquently, the needs of the patient are at the center of those decisions and moving forward. Dr. Jenkins, it has been a distinct pleasure of mine to have the opportunity today to talk about these really important tests for brain tumor patients. It's such a complex area, and I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss this with us. To learn more about the chromosomal microarray test or any of our tests for brain tumor patients at Mayo Clinic Laboratories and how to order for your institution, please visit mayocliniclabs.com.
thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>